with John Kane and Shawnee Rice heard um, Thursdays at 4 p.m. Thank you, Earth Mom, for those announcements from the Community Bulletin Board. Stay tuned for Driving Forces with Celeste Katz and Jeff Simmons. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Driving Forces, a show about politics and public policy here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Celeste Katz, here as always with my lovely and talented co-host, Jeff Simmons. Good to see you, Celeste. So we have a good show for you today. We are continuing our coverage of the Queens District Attorney's race. Obviously, this is a very big deal, uh, possibly a sea change in Queens, where we have had the same district attorney for going on 30 years very very uh, uh long long tenure there of uh, district attorney brown so uh today we're gonna have three guests uh, out of the uh seven total i believe seven total who are competing for the job and uh I don't know, Jeff, you are a Queens resident. Uh, are you excited about this or what? You know, it's interesting. I'm seeing more folks out there campaigning, uh, even checking their Twitter feeds. I see that uh, one of the candidates we will have on today was out in Forest Hills. I ran into Melinda Katz over at the uh, 74th Roosevelt subway stop recently. Uh, I just uh, had coffee with someone from our first guest's campaign last week, and he described for me everything that's been going on in the campaign. It really is picking up in the lead up to this uh, June 25th primary day. Absolutely. And obviously, this is a, a matter of serious import to everybody in Queens, uh, whether they're involved with the justice system personally or not. So I'm looking forward to hearing from our first guest as soon as we have him on the line. Yeah. And okay. we've got him on the line. Oh, great. Great. Our first guest today is Rory Lansman, who serves on the New York City Council, and he represents the 24th District in Queens. He chairs the Council's Committee on the Justice System and also serves on a number of other committees. And if you're not familiar with him, he previously served three terms in the New York State Assembly, where he sat on the Judiciary and Codes Committees and chaired the Subcommittee on Workplace Safety. Uh, Rory, welcome to Driving Forces. Thanks for having me. It's good to be with both of you. So for our listeners who are not familiar with your background, give us a sense uh, of what I haven't said about your career and also what differentiates you from the other candidates running for uh, the DA seat. Sure. So I'm a Queens kid, grew up in Flushing, me and my mom in our little rent-stabilized apartment. Um, learned a little bit about life and politics the hard way when we got harassed out of our, our, uh, our apartment when the landlord wanted us, uh, wanted us out so he could turn it into to co-ops. Queens Public Schools, Queens College, Columbia Law School, served in the Army, um, had a long uh, career as a lawyer in private practice representing people in state and federal court uh, who had been discriminated against in the workplace, sexually harassed. People had their wages stolen from them if they weren't paid overtime or minimum wage. People who had been injured on the job or in some cases killed on the job because their employers didn't take workplace safety seriously. As you mentioned, served three terms in the, in the state assembly and now in the council I chair the committee that oversees the district attorneys, the public defenders, the courts, much of the criminal justice system. And um, I guess one of the things that certainly distinguishes me from the other candidates running is for the last five years as a public official, I have been um, doing the criminal justice reform that 
now so many people are, are talking about in the council. We've we've decriminalized low-level, nonviolent quality of life offenses. We've mitigated the effects of cash bail. I've sued the mayor and the police commissioner over racism and in policing, and could go on and on. And hopefully, you ask me some questions about about the details of all of that. But I'm running because the criminal justice system in Queens is racist. It's discriminatory against poor people. It doesn't protect women, working people, immigrants, homeowners, tenants. And uh, having a district attorney who has experience reforming the criminal justice system um, is an opportunity uh, for us to really radically transform criminal justice in Queens. And uh, Councilman, and by the way, it's uh, good to hear your voice. It's been a while. I've covered you uh, uh, for quite a while in the Assembly and, and otherwise, so uh, glad to be back in touch. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've, I've been around a while. I'm like, I'm like a comfortable old shoe, except sometimes that old shoe has to kick authority in the no, behind. I think I was uh, I was more dating myself than uh, dating you with that with that <laughs> reference. But I do remember, I do certainly remember your time uh, in state government as well. Um, mm. I was taking a look uh, yesterday, I believe it was, at... Uh, the uh, the video that you have on your uh, Twitter feed, and you talk a lot about uh, justice issues, but particularly about racial equality. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, one of the uh, comments that you make here is, "Why are we last for criminal justice when we should be mm-hmm. first? You talk about mm-hmm. sort of systemic racism. So, how would your, you know, what are your thoughts on that? And how would you run the district attorney's office differently than it's being run now? So racism um, permeates our criminal justice system from start to finish, from which communities get policed and, and for what, who's sitting on Rikers Island because they can't pay cash bail, who gets the opportunity to participate in a diversion program to deal with a, a mental illness or, or um, an addiction issue. Um, uh, from start to finish, uh, our system is racist and discriminatory against poor people. And what people are realizing, and I'd like to think what the work that I've done in, in the council and elsewhere has, has certainly demonstrated, is that if you really want to reform the criminal justice system, the best place to do that is at the district attorney's office, right? Because if you don't want communities of color over-policed and mass incarcerated, well, you need a district attorney who is willing to say, I am not going to prosecute these low-level broken windows offenses that are the backbone of the new Jim Crow that criminalizes um, black and brown people, gives them records for the rest of their lives, that make it, makes it hard to get housing and employment and education. If you're the district attorney, you can say, I'm not asking for cash bail in any circumstance, period. So nobody sitting on Rikers Island is there because they don't have money in their pocket. If you have a district attorney that's willing to speak plainly and candidly about these issues, then the decisions you make about... Um, uh, charging and pleas and diversion programs and, and just the existence of having a wrongful conviction unit will be, let me put it this way, conscious of the racism that the criminal justice system is, is built on. And, and you can dismantle it block by block, piece by piece, with the decisions that you make as district attorney. So you mentioned broken windows, and I believe it was last week I had read that you are urging all city prosecutors to abandon prosecuting broken windows offenses. What's happened since? Yeah, so we've had a tremendous amount of success in um, dismantling the, frankly, racist and discriminatory broken windows regime. I was part of the council last term. Um, It was one of the sponsors of the bills that decriminalized a lot of these low-level broken windows offenses, took them out of the criminal justice system, entirely. And last week, I had called upon the district attorneys 
to exercise their authority to vacate open warrants from uh, from people who had missed the court appearance for one of these broken windows offenses that are no longer even criminalized. And I'm happy to say that three of the five district attorneys, the Bronx, the Brooklyn, Bronx, Brooklyn, and Manhattan, have agreed to vacate those warrants. That is hundreds of thousands of people who are not going to be run through the criminal justice system because of the work that I'm doing and have done in the city council to, um, to, to smash broken windows policing. And speaking of policing issues, and if you're just joining us, by the way, this is Driving Forces on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live on WBAI.org. Celeste Katz and Jeff Simmons talking to Rory Lansman, city councilman and candidate for Queens District Attorney. Uh, councilman, again, going back to uh, some of the uh, the video features that are available about the campaign, I noticed that you have a uh, uh, some time spent here in the video with the mother of Eric Garner, um, mm -hmm. obviously still a, a name that's uh, very meaningful, really touches a nerve uh, throughout this city. Um, can you talk more broadly, aside from broken windows policing, generally about how you see the district attorney interacting with the police department? Yeah, so let me say, look, I've got a lot of endorsements from elected officials and from labor unions, um, but the endorsements that I'm most proud of are the people who have been touched by the criminal justice system itself. Um, Gwen Carr, Eric Garner's mom, um, is in my announcement video. Um, and we you know, came to know each other in trying to fight for justice for her, for her son. I'm very proud to have her support. Valerie Bell, the mother of Sean Bell, which is a name that people in Queens, I'm sure, will remember. He was killed on his wedding day um, uh, in a hail of bullets uh, for, for no reason whatsoever. I'm proud to have her support. I'm proud to have the support of a former chief judge, Jonathan Lipman, who was one of the preeminent criminal justice reformers in, in, in New York State and around the country. People have to realize the power that the district attorney has in shaping police conduct. As I like to say, the police can only police what prosecutors are willing to prosecute. Right? So when we started pressuring prosecutors to stop uh, prosecuting uh, uh, low-level cases, uh, stop prosecuting marijuana offenses, stop prosecuting uh, fair evasion uh, cases. Um, that has had a huge impact in those jurisdictions, unfortunately not Queens, that have exercised their, their authority to not do so. so. So in Manhattan, people aren't getting arrested for fair evasion anymore because Cy Vance isn't prosecuting fair evasion. They, they get stopped, they get a civil ticket, but they're not getting run through the, the criminal justice system. On top of that, you have to have a district attorney, and, and this is the, the foundation of my support from, from Gwen Carr and Valerie Bell. You have to have a district attorney who is willing to hold the police accountable for wrongdoing, for misconduct, for police violence, for test the line. And I don't know that there's any other public official in the last five years that has pressed the police department more than I have um, to conduct itself in uh, the, the, the way that, that it should. You know, in the council, I'm the sponsor of the chokehold bill, which would make it a misdemeanor crime punishable by up to a year in prison for officers to perform a chokehold, like the, like the one that killed Eric Garner. So um, in the choices that the district attorney makes, you can shape how the police go about policing, and in particular, in your willingness to hold police accountable and prosecute police officers for wrongdoing, um, you, can, you can make the police force more responsive 
and, and interact better and appropriately with the community. So, Councilman, uh, as Celeste said, as we opened up the show, Richard Brown has been in office for nearly three decades. Would you set? Would you want there to be set term limits for DAs? That's a good question. Um, I am a supporter of term limits for all offices, offices, and that would include um, the district attorney's office. I mean, the truth is that um, the reason that district attorneys are are elected officials is that they're supposed to be responsive to the communities, the community's values, the community's interests, the community's opinions on things. When you are in office and you don't face meaningful opposition and you end up being um, in, 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 in sitting in the same seat for 20 years, 30 years, you lose touch with the community. And with all due respect to, to, to Dick Brown personally, I think that that's what happened in, in Queens. And, and Queens is missed the criminal justice reform movement in a big way. And, and that wouldn't have happened if either Dick Brown himself had had competitive elections where he had to go out to the people and talk about the policies that he has in place, or if there were term limits and you had an open seat. And as, as now, you have seven different people running around saying, here's what I want to do as Queens DA. It's interesting. You say seven different people. I haven't seen any Republican names floated at this point. Have there been any that have surfaced? You know, I was just thinking about that the other day. No, I, I, I haven't seen that. Um, I would assume that they'll put somebody up. But Queens is a, is a Democratic uh, borough, and I don't want to name names, but there are a couple of candidates who, who are on the Democratic side who, who probably uh, the Republicans would, would be happy to, to, to be in office, whether they're a Democrat or a Republican. And, and, um, and why do you say that? Well, I think that there's a very, very wide gap between the criminal justice reform that I am proposing and I have built my my career upon, um, and, and, and which is supported by my record, and, you know, kind of the slogans and rhetoric that, that a couple of other candidates have, have, have thrown out there who just don't have that kind of background or history as, as being engaged in criminal justice issues at all, or are people who, frankly, built the Queen's District Attorney's Office over the course of, of their careers. I mean, you know, we have people running for the Queen's DA's office who've spent 15, 25, 30 years in the Queen's DA's office. If you spent 15, 25, 30 years in the Queen's DA's office, you you built this monstrosity that that people like me are trying to dismantle. So we've got just about uh, three minutes left. Wanted to run through some very quick issues with you. Yeah, absolutely, including uh, especially, actually, the uh, situation with Rikers Island. Uh, mm. Again, of interest not only to people in Queens, but uh, all over the city and, and beyond. What do you think should happen there? Yeah, so I've been an outspoken advocate for closing Rikers Island and the support of, of the plan to close it and, and build four borough-based jails. And I'm, I'm the only candidate in this race who supports that plan closing Rikers Island and biting the bullet and saying we're going to build four borough-based jails that are next to the courthouses, at least in Queens, next to the courthouse in, in Kew Gardens where there, there was a jail, um, where we don't have to spend tens of millions of dollars a year transporting people back and forth to, to Rikers Island, where we um, can build a modern facility that will keep everyone safe, the correction officers, the, 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 the detainees, and, and, and civilian staff. Um, and I'd you know, I don't dance around this issue or, or any others. Rikers is a dystopian nightmare that must be closed. It, we must um, uh, reduce the population at Rikers Island because most of the people sitting there have not been uh, convicted of anything. And we must bring those jails closer to the courthouses where those cases are being adjudicated. 
And uh, just before Jeff jumps in here, just going back for one second, since you say you don't dance around uh, this or any other issue, I do want to go back for one second and say that if you do have, if you do take issue with specific people who are running in this race for Queens DA, can you say who they are, who you have in mind when you were when you were um, lodging those criticisms of people who have been part of the system and are now trying to perpetuate it? Uh, listen, if if your main um, argument for why you are ready and prepared and best suited to be the Queens District Attorney is that you've spent 15, 20, 30 years in the Queens District Attorney's Office, then then you're missing the point of this race. And if you haven't spent the last 5, 10 years as a public official focused on criminal justice reform issues or even mentioning criminal justice reform issues, then you're missing what this race is about. This race is about radically transforming the criminal justice system in Queens. So, uh, Councilman, we're going to have to wrap up because we uh, have two other of your competitors who are going to be lined up for today. Uh, As we close, can you tell our listeners how they can learn more about your campaign? Sure, very easy. I mean, Celeste mentioned a couple of videos that I have. Um, We're on the, the Internet, we're on Twitter, we're on Facebook. Go to lancemanforda.com, L-A-N-C-M-A-N-F-O-R-D-A.com, and you will see the website that we built when I announced as the first candidate to announce running for DA back in September. Uh, Very detailed policy positions, my whole history as a criminal justice reformer, and plenty of cool videos from people who are supporting me who represent the whole spectrum of diversity of life in, in Queens. Thank you very much, Councilman Rory Lanceman. Been a pleasure to have you here on WBAI. So as we uh, get ready for our next guest, uh, one of the things uh, that's been very interesting to me has been uh, kind of reading a little about the movement on legalization of marijuana, which Mm -hmm. we'll ask our, our other guests about, too. But, you know, we did our special episode a few months ago on this before it kind of picked up momentum yeah, but going, then going back a bit yeah but then from what i had read in the last 24 hours it seems like it's not going to be moving ahead here in new york state at this point uh i mean for all we know this could be a negotiating ploy uh but sure know. yeah there's always uh you know there's always that that issue of of sort of brinksmanship and that sort of thing or maybe trying to uh, go along with with uh, getting some legislation like that in exchange for maybe not a direct quid pro quo, but you know, people will offer to support it, but they also want something for their district or they want to advance a bill that they have had uh, sitting around in committee for a while. So there's, you know, often this kind of uh, horse trading, so to speak. And I do want to remind our listeners uh, of our call-in number because after uh, we speak with the candidates today, we're encouraging you then to uh, give us a call and uh, let us know your thoughts on what you think the uh, uh, some of the criminal justice reforms you would want the district uh, uh, attorney candidates to be able to focus on. That number is 212-209-2877. Uh, we're going to be getting one of the other candidates on the line shortly. Right. And, uh, but in the meantime, we will be taking your calls. And again, 212-209-2877. We are talking about the Queens District Attorney's race today. But uh, also, we're interested to hear, you know, what what are your thoughts about what's going on with the legalization of marijuana? What are your thoughts on how the district attorneys in general in Queens and elsewhere should interact with the community and with the police? Do you think things have gotten better at all since 
since the time of Eric Garner? Do you think they've gotten worse? Or do you think they haven't changed at all? We do want to hear from you. 212-209-2877. 212-209-2877. You're listening to Driving Forces here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.com. Org. So as we focus on the Queens District Attorney's race, I just want to remind people of the names of the people who are running. Last week we had on Melinda Katz, Jose Nieves, and Betty Lugo. And we just spoke with New York City Councilman Rory Lanceman. And we've got two other candidates. We're trying to get one on the line right now and another one who's supposed to speak to us in about another uh, 12 or 13 minutes. Uh, and the final candidate who I'd been desperately trying to reach to make sure that we offered everyone an opportunity, his campaign did get back and he will be on a future episode of driving forces. Oh, okay, great. So uh, as we said, we do have some more candidates lined up, but we are going to take your calls right now. I think we have some people on the line with us. Uh, WBAI, you are on the air. What's your name and where are you calling from? Oh, hang on one second. I think we are getting getting a caller in. Hold on one second. Um, WBAI, you're on the air. What's your name and where are you calling from? We've got a dial tone. Wow. <laughs> we did have someone who called in. Uh, we do. I think we do now, or we are going to. And this is another reason why, even though our pledge drive is over, that you should donate to, to WBAI so we can get equipment that works uh, properly. We put in all these new phone lines to take your calls. But Celeste, what's that number to, uh, to pledge? What is that number? Is it 516-620-3602? I think it is. I think it's 516 516- Six two zero three six zero two. I think this is a, a a shining example of why we need uh, better switchboards, better phone equipment. Uh, but I did get a look at the studio today, actually, Jeff. When we were in there before, right? I mean, I, when I walked in, I can't believe the progress that is being made. And I think that's really seriously because of the people that supported us during our winter pledge drive. But we can still, again, always, always use your help. So since we have a few moments while we're getting another candidate on the line. Oh, we've got another? I'm sorry? Oh, we ah, do have callers. Got okay. a call. All right, let's try it. Uh, WBAI, you're on the air. What's your name and where are you calling from? Hi, welcome to BAI. Yeah, um, I will just make a comment on the marijuana legalization. And um, I feel as Rastafari, we are going in the wrong direction for that plan. And I feel, as Rasta, we already exercised a First Amendment right to marijuana. So I don't think the state should have control over it. So I am very much opposing the, the, the legalization trend because it's dangerous for the community without the education of this, of this um, plant. Um, especially for the youth. What kind, so, of, um, what kind of education are you thinking about? Well, just spiritually, because for us as Rasta, we, we, we use it as a sacrament. So I, I think the Rasta community should be the one, based on them being persecuted for this plan for the past 100 years. It's, it's something that there's a spiritual connection to the plan that is being overlooked for the capitalistic um, drive. To, to, to legalize. Okay. Um, so I, I, I just want that to be a part of the discussion that there's their spiritual connection between the plant and us as man and woman that is being overlooked by the society 
you know, in, in terms of driving for, for profit. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. We really appreciate your call. If you want to call in, talk about uh, the Queens District Attorney's Office, marijuana legalization, uh, police community relations. That's what we're talking about today here on Driving Forces, 212-209-2877. I think we have more callers on the board. WBAI, you're on the air. What's your name and where are you calling from? Hey, good afternoon, folks. Steve from New Jersey. How are you? Hey, Steve, what's up? Well, I'm calling because right now we're facing the same thing with marijuana legalization you're favoring in New York, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, it looks like it's not going to get voted in because of the, the uh, Senate votes and all this and legislative votes. But the thing is, is the people should be able to vote on this. Not, you know what? This, to me, illegal marijuana, I'm so sick of hearing about the opioid crisis Hey, I don't want to hear about that, um, like in the Farm Bureau bought in the New Jersey, right? Mm-hmm. The news also brought forward serious opposition from urban leaders, health officials, highway safety advocates, educators, and law enforcement. Kids getting into it, mental health issues, impaired driving, and cost of regulating all this. Getting this passed could be difficult, but arms will be twisted. Well, let me tell you something. It's working in Colorado. It's working in Massachusetts. It's working in California. It's working in Washington, D.C. To me, this is just another form like Ferguson, Missouri, of systemic corruption. Mm -hmm. Because you know what? People are worried about losing their jobs. I will never forget 20 years ago, we were out in in the cabinet wilderness with our forest fire service. Okay. We were in Glacier. They split us off for a strike team to go to a lightning strike on the Canadian border, on the top of Montana. And up there was a fish, game, and wildlife uh, office, and it was a grizzly bear research place, and the DEA had an office there, right? Okay, well, I'm, so, getting, I'm getting a little... Once, once I got to the grizzly bear, I kind of lost the connection with pot here. Well, well, no, I got a good connection, but... Well, all right, okay, me, let's was, get where we're going there. Come on, Steve, Okay, well, help what happened out. was the DEA's got cameras up there. I said, what do you guys need this for? You think somebody's going to come over the border with a backpack with drugs? And then I said, this, this drug war is out of control. And the guy said to me, well, buddy, don't knock it. It's the only war we got. So all this is about keeping it illegal is about the prison industrial complex, cops in their jobs, and prison guards in their jobs. It's systemic corruption. Okay. It's working in all these other states. And I just want to be able Yeah. Okay, Steve, I think okay, we... Okay, thank you. Oh, Okay. <clears throat> sorry, again, sorry about that. Uh, switchboard is uh, acting up a little bit on us today. Thank you, Steve. That was uh, that was quite a... Well, I tell you guys, I'll tell you guys what, if you're out there listening today, and I think you can beat a story that starts out with the farm journal and ends up on top of a mountaining with the grizzly bear and a lightning strike, give us a call, 212-209-2877, 212 a very eclectic edition today. Yes, it is. Of and, Driving Forces. And the people who are tuning in, just so you know, you are listening to Driving Forces here on WBAI, New York 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. I am Jeff Simmons, and joined by my co-host, Celeste Katz. We now have another one of the district attorney candidates on the line, Mina Malik, who serves as deputy attorney general 
at the Office of the Attorney General for the District of Columbia and previously led the CCRB, the Civilian Complaint Review Board. She served as an assistant DA under Queens DA Richard Brown for 15 years, and and that included a significant tenure in the Sex Crimes Bureau. And in 2014, she became a special counsel to the late uh, Brooklyn District Attorney Ken Thompson. Welcome to Driving Forces. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you for having me. So uh, I'm also a Queens resident, and so I expect that I'm going to be seeing you at one of, uh, you know, one of the subway stops in the near future. So uh, tell us a little about yourself and what differentiates you from the other candidates who are running in the in the borough. Absolutely. So I think what what differentiates me from the other candidates that are running for Queens District Attorney Jeff is that three things. Number one, my lived experience as a woman, as an immigrant, as a person of color as the mother of two black sons who has seen the other side of law enforcement. Um, That's number one. Number two, my criminal justice experience of having been involved in the criminal justice space and working in that space on both the defense side as well as the prosecution side for over 20 years. I started off at the D.C. Public Defender Service, and as you mentioned, I've worked for both the Queens and Brooklyn District Attorney's Office. I've headed up a citywide agency, the CCRB, for police misconduct. And I've also been the Deputy Attorney General in Washington, D.C., for Attorney General Carl Racine. And the third thing that differentiates me from all of the other candidates is that everyone's talking about criminal justice reform. I've actually implemented criminal justice reform at the highest levels in three different government agencies now the Brooklyn DA's office, the Civilian Complaint Review Board, as well as the Attorney General's office for the District of Columbia. So those are the three things that differentiate me the most. And I'm the only candidate who has looked into the eyes of a woman who was raped, a child who was abused, a civilian who was wronged by a police officer, and a person who was wrongfully convicted. And I've promised all of them that I would get them justice. And this is something that I've asked some of our other candidates, but uh, I'm curious to know what you think, because you've mentioned it. Do you think it matters if the district attorney is male or female? Should it matter? I think what's important to note is that Queens deserves a district attorney that has a wide variety of experience, both lived experience as well as experience in the criminal justice space and in qualifications to do the job, right? So it's important that Queens is, Queens is the most diverse county in the entire country, if not the world, and it's important to have that diversity reflected at the upper echelons and the leadership level of the Queens DA's office in order to serve our communities well, effectively, and efficiently. And so that's what I think is very important, is that we have that diversity at the top levels to reflect the communities that the office serves. Do you think that men and women are being treated differently by the justice system right now, particularly in Queens, but also in general, if that's if that's been your experience with uh, uh, other positions that you've that you've held? It's important to note that there have been racial disparities in terms of criminal justice. In fact, I read one study recently that said that black males are five times more likely to be arrested than um, their white counterparts. And particularly nowadays, black females seem to be arrested more um, at a higher rate than their white counterparts. 
So it's something that we need to watch and something that we need to address in law enforcement, not only at the policing level, but also in terms of the way that we prosecute cases going forward. And speaking of incarceration rates and disparities there, that I think sort of naturally brings us to the question of what you think should be done about Rikers Island. Right. So I am a a big proponent of alternatives to incarceration. Um, Rikers Island is an abomination right now. It is a very violent place, and it's not a place that, that is fit for a human to live in. And we have to respect people's dignity, the human, basic human dignity for people when we are detaining them pre-trial or post, post-trial, post-conviction. And right now, Rikers is not um, a place that I would want to see my sons in or any of our citizens or any of our family members in um, going forward. So my thought is that Rikers must be closed. We have to reject the violent c- culture of Rikers going forward. And research shows that community jails are more humane and result in lower recidivism rates going forward. But I hope that the community in Queens, where the new jails are going to be built, not only in Queens but in the other boroughs, have their voices fully heard in this debate. That's always the that's always the question, right? <clears throat> People may agree with closing Rikers Island. I don't think we've heard from anybody yet who disagrees with closing Rikers Island, have we? But. Uh, where to uh, where to set up these community jails. Do you feel a district attorney has a role or should have a role in convincing neighborhoods not to reject community jails the way they sometimes have rejected, for example, homeless shelters or drug treatment facilities? I think it's important for people to be informed about the research surrounding community-based jails, right? And so, again, you know, community-based jails, um, they show that if you have people more connected to their communities, to their family members, to their support networks, that they are less less likely to recidivate going forward. And so that, I think, is is something that's very important is for communities to be informed about the research involved in community-based jails so that they can make informed decisions about what's best for them and their communities going forward. So uh, in my community, I live in uh, Jackson Heights. Uh, I think I'm about maybe one, two stops away from where the incident happened recently with the uh, the shooting on the subway platform uh, on the 7 line, uh, which was connected with MS-13. And I'm curious what, as a as district attorney, uh, you would do to combat gang violence. It's very important for a district attorney to take serious violent crimes seriously. And there are those cases that need to be prosecuted vigorously. Um, Gun violence is one of them. Gang violence is one of them. Hate crimes is one of them. Um, We need to be able to keep our communities safe. And people need need to feel safe going to and from work, to and from school, taking the subways, taking mass transportation, and things of that nature. And so when we have serious gun violence like we did on the number seven train, at the 90th Street Station on that weekend, we need to proactively go after and make sure that we're keeping our communities safe by vigorously prosecuting violent crimes. Uh, specific to MS-13, of course, as you as you know, and as all our 
pardon me, as all our listeners know, uh, President Trump has spoken extensively about MS-13, has brought particular attention to the presence of of that gang uh, in Long Island, and uh, has sort of used it as a proxy for uh, pushing his uh, restrictions on immigration and so on. And some people have called this, you know, these two things unrelated. Some people have called them a dog whistle. How, did, how can a district attorney who's uh, who's working here in the city in a very diverse place balance uh, the the law and order issues that you're talking about, gun control and so on, without uh, sort of falling into that larger uh, gray area of, of conflating immigration with crime? I think it's very important to make sure that we're not using scare tactics, unnecessarily so, particularly when we're involving our immigrant populations. Immigrants are the fabric of this city, right? And they help us going forward. They are very much part of our lives, particularly in the workforce of New York City. And going forward, I think that they deserve as much protection um, in our city as our citizens do, as U.S. citizens do. And so I think we need to be very careful about labeling people as other and otherizing them, as well as using this sort of dog whistle um, political rhetoric and scaring people into thinking that immigrants are the cause for violence in our city. In fact, I believe the research shows that immigrants are not the cause of of the major components of violence in our city, but where they are, certainly we need to take that into consideration to make sure that we're holding people accountable for any offenses that they commit. And, uh, State legislature legislators are considering uh, uh, driver's licenses for uh, immigrants, and I'm curious what your view is on that. Sure. So I firmly believe that from a public safety standpoint, we definitely um, it is definitely better for road safety and for our public safety when we can get people people's drivers people driver's licenses. In fact, like Brooklyn DA Eric Gonzalez and Bronx DA Garcel Clark, both of them have now endorsed the, the bill to get people's drive, people driver's licenses. And I think it's very important to do that going forward, not only from a public safety standpoint, but so that people can feel um, comfortable and safe going to and from school and going to and from work. Again, immigrants make up the fabric of our society here in New York City. They're a big part of our workforce, and we should be able to support them going forward. And not only will we be supporting immigrants in in terms of helping them get to and from school and to and from their jobs, but we'll also keep the roads safer because people will be road tested, they will be insured, and they will undergo both the written and the driver test that many of the New York City drivers license drivers drivers who have licenses undergo in our city. And we've been asking every one of the candidates, so I'm curious your view, should there be term limits uh, for the district attorney? That's a very interesting question. I do think that there's something to be said for term limits. I think there's something to be said for bringing a fresh perspective to an office, particularly one where someone may be in office for a very, very long time. I think it's important that, and like many other um, industries, right, the technology industry, the medical industry, the scientific field, 
All of these other fields are always evolving and forever evolving. Criminal justice is no different. And so it's important to have somebody in the criminal justice space, particularly in the top law enforcement position for a county of 2.4 million people, to have that diversity of perspective and a fresh and objective eye coming into office. So how do you feel about the mayor's record on criminal justice initiatives? Should de Blasio have been tougher, weak, you know, uh, should he have stepped back? I'm just curious, assess his record. I think in terms of criminal justice, we can always do better. And for in terms of criminal justice in each of the counties, one of the things that is important to note is that we are a city of five different boroughs. And in those five boroughs, People need to be, it's important for people to be treated the same, right? No matter whether you're in Manhattan or whether you're in Queens or whether you're in Brooklyn. And so if you're not getting prosecuted for something in Manhattan, I think it's important to maintain um, maintaining the same thing in the other boroughs, such as Queens and Brooklyn, Staten Island and the Bronx. Um, it's for the fairness of people to be treated in the criminal justice system, and it's very important for people to be treated the same. So uh, as we wrap up, and you've been very generous with your time, and we do we do appreciate it. I guess I, I, I would probably like to conclude by just I'm looking at something on your Twitter feed here, uh, and it's a quote from uh, some comments that you made about not defining success by how many convictions you get. And if that's sort of the standard for district attorneys, like, look, we're locking a lot of people up and we're throwing away, you know, throwing them in jail and throwing away the key and so on. Um, how do you... How would you judge your success and how would you show people that that is a better measure than how many people you can you can lock up? What I plan on bringing to the district attorney's office is a 21st century modern day prosecutor's mentality. And what that means is not defining the success of our office by how many convictions we get per year or how many guilty pleas we get per year. What should be the defined the defining success for our office is how well we are able to take a holistic approach to a person and not only deal with the victims the victims issues and their needs the witnesses issues and their needs but we also need to be looking at the accused issues and his or her needs going forward and i really think that that's something that's important for a 21st century prosecutor to do particularly a district attorney in a major metropolitan city is to look at the defendant, look at the accused, and try and determine and figure out how can we help this person? How can we make this person whole again? How can we make sure that this person going forward is a productive member of society that contributes to the fabric of, the, of our society in a positive way? And trying to help that person become the best person that they can be going forward so that they don't end up in the criminal justice system again. So, uh, Mina Malik, please tell our listeners how they can learn more about your campaign. Absolutely. So we have a website, mina4da.com. It's mina, the number four, da.com. And also on Twitter at Mina Malik 4 da and Facebook as well. Thank you so much for joining Celeste Katz and me, Jeff Simmons, here on WBAI's Driving Forces today. Thank you so much for having me. So we are now going to take your calls. 
We already have a caller on the line who obviously wants to weigh in on the issues that he or she feels are important for this race. So welcome to BAI and uh, what's on your mind? conversation when I drive and just I call because I am in a, a situation, you know, right now where people coming in in my apartment, they broken everything. I am Mexican. So um, people coming in, break everything, my clothes, my shoes, my dishes, everything in here. You know what? And the police doesn't do anything. And the police don't do uh, anything, or have not done anything to help you, you're saying? No, not at all. Okay, and, and why do you think that is? Uh, you know, it's really, I hear about, they say, uh, you know, the homophobia. I don't think so, it's homophobia. I think totally, this is very clear. What it is, is it's a mafia. Okay, thank you, thank you very much for uh, for sharing your uh, for sharing your thoughts with us. And um, uh, again, this is it's hard to tell in one phone call, you know, what what the background of the of a specific case is. But if you want to call in and talk to us about criminal justice issues, uh, we're specifically talking about the Queens District Attorney race. Uh, again, two one two two zero nine two eight seven seven two one two two zero nine two eight seven seven uh, we've been talking a lot for example today about rikers island and uh, pretty much everybody that we've spoken to the candidates in the queen's district attorney's race want to get rid of rikers island they say it's a it's it's not a fit place for human beings to be living that it's a, a disgrace a disaster a, a, an abomination and they're talking about moving community jails into local neighborhoods instead sort of breaking the system up how would you feel about having one of those uh, facilities in your neighborhood would you like to live next door to one of those if you have somebody in your family who's incarcerated would you prefer to have them in one of those facilities as opposed to uh, a big uh, centralized jail like Rikers Island 212-209-2877 what's been uh, interesting about this race and I followed it uh, uh, Gotham Gazette has been doing very you know very good coverage. Uh, there was a forum last week that our friends uh, from uh, Wednesday night here on BAI, Ben Max and Jarrett Murphy, uh, uh, have uh, reported mm-hmm. on uh, that they've talked about the race. And you know what came up at a forum last week, I believe it was, and at CUNY Law, was that the candidates largely agree on a number of the issues, but they disagree on some of the solutions. And we're actually finding that with the questions that we're asking today, that they seem, you know, very similar in you know like closing Rikers or legalizing right. marijuana yeah, or legalizing driver's licenses. I totally right. agree with you. I mean that's where and I hope that's where these interviews are coming in uh, and being a little bit helpful here at BAI, helping people distinguish between uh, candidates who have a lot of really similar views on these big issues. And what we have oh great we have more people calling in again if you want to talk about criminal justice today 212-209-2877 BAI, you're on the air. What's your name and where are you from? Is that me? That's you. Yes, it is. Oh, oh, oh okay. My name is Mary, and I'm from Union County, New Jersey. And Hi, this is a question regarding the uh, giving license to non-citizens. Uh, and my question is, if they read uh, 
English, understand English or read, read the signs on the street, how productive is that for giving them driver's license if they can't read the signs or the roads? That's what I'm most curious about. Uh, okay, that's a, that's an interesting question. Now, I'd have to uh, check since I have not renewed my driver's license. I don't have to renew it for, I think, until next year, actually. But as I recall, as I recall from my experiences in getting a driver's license, you do have the option to take the driver's exam, the written exam, in a language other than English. So I don't think it's required to... Uh, to obtain a driver's license, the state does not require that you speak English uh, to pass the to take or pass the written test. Now, as far as uh, understanding street signs or directions uh, and so on, you know, yeah, that may that may be a different story. But I think, I mean, unless I'm unless I'm wrong, and if I am wrong, uh, call in, correct me two one two two zero nine two eight seven seven. I do not believe that speaking. Uh, English is or reading English is a requirement at least at least for passing uh, the exam for a standard uh, personal driver's license. If there's a difference well, for more. commercial driver's license or hack licenses, uh, perhaps that's a uh, perhaps that's a different story. But uh, well, yes, go ahead. Sure. Well, one more question: If you have a sign that says "One Way Detour, Do Not Enter." Uh, even though they give the uh, they can give the test in different languages, but most of the signs on the street that I've seen uh, they're in English. Oh, sure, so no that's question what about I'm it. I'm confused about, and oh. you need to be able to know how to read the signs and know what they mean. Oh, that's so also. I, I, I don't. That's also I don't understand how they can just give them just give them license because then what? Why do they need to apply for citizenship if you're going to just give them license? Why apply for citizenship? You're getting everything. Mm. No, I understand. And thank you for your question. And look, okay, well, first of all, I mean, just going back for one second uh, on the the driver's uh, the driver's license issue. Certainly, that's a really, really controversial issue. Now, the question is, as far as the street signs, I think, you know, again, it's, it's been a while since I had to renew my license. It's still active. But uh, as I recall, I think you can take the uh, licensing exam in a language other than English, but it does require you to be able to recognize uh, signage and so on. Uh, other countries obviously have signs that don't even have any words on them. You don't need to speak any language to recognize, a, say, a stop sign or a, uh, there are plenty of signs that don't have words on them like pedestrian signs or you know stuff like that. Um, now, the bigger question, and I'm going to like take a breath and let Jeff say something for a change. Well, I'm ready for the call. Oh, we have more calls. Lighting you know, up. Okay. Oh, yeah. The question is, Okay, is driving a privilege of citizenship, or should it be? Uh, should you? Are there certain things that you should not be able to do unless you are a full U.S. citizen? Uh, maybe one of our callers wants to talk about that. WBAI, you're on the air. What's your name, and where are you calling from? Uh, is that me? That's yes, you. it is. Oh, okay. My name is Mason, calling from Brooklyn. What's up, Mason? I'm good. Um, I wasn't really listening about. That I was wanted to just remark about the prisons, um, Rikers Island closing, closing, and I think it's a good idea. I don't think um, that in the five boroughs is really that much of a problem finding a place to put a, uh, a penitentiary in each borough. I mean, there are plenty of isolated places in each borough where you can designate to put a place like uh, you know a jail, you know doesn't really have to be in anyone's particular neighborhood. Mm -hmm. um, would that. you would you be open to say using uh, 
open space, parkland, part of you know, part of a uh, say a park to build. Well, and build yeah, a gym? I'm I'm, yeah. I'm thinking about uh, that area uh, past Kings Plaza specifically. I mean, there's plenty of open land right there. I mean, that would be definitely a lot easier than going to um, some island off of Queens to go to a prison. Yeah, no, I understand. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mason, for your call. And we've just got a few minutes left. We'll take one more call at this point. Welcome to WBAI. What's your name and what's on your mind today? Hi, welcome to BAI. Yeah, thank you. Uh, just a, on a light note, what this, the prison thing reminded me of, Saturday Night Live had a skit, and it could have been entitled uh, Foster Prison because they were keeping prisoners, like, down in the cellar and in the linen closet. And Bill Murray was, like, the father. He's like, but look at how much money we're saving. And this helps pay the rent. In other words, you know, it was like a foster prison. They were getting paid to keep these prisoners in their house. And what happens is that the prisoners get so noisy, he, he gets fed up, he opens the gate and lets them free. Okay, but, you know, I have to advise Celeste on who Bill Murray is because that was way before her time because she's half my age. <laughs> oh, oh. Yeah, well, right. What, what, what I'm saying is what I... Which would make me like, 15 years old. You think this is... Uh, this, oh, that was just comedy. It could never really happen. And what I say is look at the White House. Things that are spoofs in the past are happening in real life today. Absolutely hear you. Thank you. Uh, thank you for pointing that out. We have uh, time for one more. We have to wrap up. Okay, we're going to take one more. Super, super quick, though. Super quick. TikTok. WBAI, you're on the air. What's your name? Where are you from? Hi, hi uh, my name's Chris. I'm from uh, New Jersey. Okay, Chris, you're our last call, so uh, make it quick. We're listening. So I think with uh, non-citizens, I feel like the idea is that they're uneducated or they don't speak more than one language. I think, especially... Um, my experience from going to NYU, uh, a lot of these people who don't have citizenship are going through the rigorous and tough process um, to get that. So I feel like having, you know, a license is easier for them to navigate and, and you know, whether they have emergencies, whether they have family functions, or what are the things that are important to them that give them agency to live in America and, and you know, get that American dream that they're looking for. I think, you know, it, it, it should be it should be a fair thought that you know these non-citizens are highly educated, can probably speak more than one language, and you know uh, giving them a driver's license is just giving them one step closer to you know that full citizenship that they're looking for. I agree. And, you know, just living their life. Thank you. Thank you very much for your, for uh, sharing your thoughts with us. We uh, really appreciate it. And I think that is going to bring us to uh, almost the top of the hour. You've been listening to Driving Forces here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming at WBAI.org. I'm Celeste Katz here with Jeff Simmons every week, uh, every Thursday at five o'clock. And we'd like to thank... Uh, we'd like to thank our guests. We had Rory Lantzman and Mina Malikon. And while the show was going on, the third candidate texted to apologize because she didn't hear the ring. That was Tiffany Caban. We will have her on at a future point, as well as the seventh candidate, Greg Lasek. Okay, great. Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks uh, to our engineer, James. And we will see you on the radio.
Yes, it's a great theme song. Coming up at the top of the hour, 6 o'clock, the evening news with Paul Drienzo. Stay with us. everybody, this is Kevin O'Donnell of The Positive Mind, reminding you that this weekend, Saturday, March 23rd, is our workshop day at the Commons Cafe underneath the WBA studios in Brooklyn. We've been talking during the fun drive about a workshop called Safe Conversations, which is a, co- a dialogue and a conversation with somebody important in your life, a new way of learning to break through and communicate to this valuable person in your life. If you haven't gotten tickets, you can still participate. We have plenty of people coming. If you are interested, call 212-757-4488. You will get a book and two tickets to the workshop on Saturday. Uh, All proceeds go to WBAI from the Fund Drive. Again, it's 212-757-4488. We look forward to seeing you there. It will be a great day. This month is the 40th anniversary of the nuclear disaster at Three Mile Island in Pennsylvania. What happened then? What's it like there now? Why is the anniversary worth talking about? Tune in to Ecologic on Tuesday, March 26th at 8 p.m. to hear from activists and experts from Pennsylvania, Japan, New York, and Washington, D.C. Right here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and WBAI.org. Everybody's wondering 